Stefan Manut, uh, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. So um, years ago when I got interested into, I guess, politics, culture, society, uh, basically how everyone, everything. And of course, I was intro introduced to this stuff by uh, people like Gavin McInnes, Stephen Crowder, that kind of crowd, Ben Shapiro even. And you were actually one of the first people I followed on Twitter. Um, and this was probably 2015, 2016. Um, and I remember seeing your content was posted all over like meme pages and stuff. And I, I probably watched some of your stuff on YouTube. I recall doing that too. But I also recall you being one of the first people to be banned. Was um, I really? If, the, I don't know if I was that early in the whole stage. There were lots of people who went down like nine pins ahead of me, but uh, I certainly was one of the biggest for sure. Right. Uh, without well, a, a trace of self uh, self aggrandizement, certainly in terms of numbers, it was pretty high. Maybe it wasn't that early. I mean, it was. I'm just. I don't remember exactly when, but I remember. Like, it just seems like a long time that you haven't been there. Um, just I think it was still uh, being June, today, June or you know? July of last year, if I remember rightly. Really? Yeah. Damn, I must have a no, no. Yeah, sorry, year before last. Was year before last? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no. It was last. It was. It's about a little over a year ago. Yeah, because it was oh, okay. uh, wow. in, in the couple of months lead up to the election, right? November third. Okay. So wow. I, I think it was June or July of uh, of last year. Yeah, for some reason I thought it was much earlier. I don't know. Maybe my memory is just well. No, awful, because but... I got kicked off a bunch of platforms before that, or okay. as I like to think of it, cordially invited to um, express my opinions elsewhere. And so, yeah, I'd been kicked off a bunch of platforms before that. Those were really the two big ones uh, and the ones that I had uh, worked, I guess, the most to create. I mean, I was on YouTube in 2005. I was like the third guy on YouTube. And uh, mm -hmm. I was on YouTube in 2005. I think I did a fair amount to help them grow. And I, I worked really hard to defend them when they were physically attacked uh, by that crazy female shooter and so on. Uh, so, yeah, I, but I started getting suppressed there. I think in 2018, and then uh, the suppression sort of continued into 2019. At the end of 2019, I released my documentary on Hong Kong, where I marched with the protesters uh, against the the communists and uh, took a couple of facefuls of tear gas for my troubles. And <laughs> that uh, did not help uh, in terms of my reputation with the leftists and social media. In fact, you could have searched for the name of that documentary directly and you couldn't find it on YouTube. It had gone completely ghosted. And uh, yeah, then the final uh, hammer came down uh, summer last year and you know, no warning, no strikes, no threat. It just boom, just all, all gone. And no, no chance to download, no chance to transfer. Although I have, of course, most of the videos. So, uh, and I was a, I think I was close to 500,000 on Twitter and I would have been about 1.5 million on YouTube, except they kept, you know, I'd get some, I'd put out a good video. I'd get a whole bunch of listeners or, or subscribers and then they just claw them back. They just, oh, we're tidying up, <laughs> tidying up the rolls uh, because apparently it's really, really important for everyone to be able to vote except on social media, then you got to interfere with that as much as humanly possible. But yeah, sorry, just, but before me, I mean, gosh, I mean, of course, Alex Jones, uh, right. Milo, uh, who I know you've talked to, and uh, I mean, just a bunch of other people uh, were facing their own kind of troubles and hassles. And uh, I think I hung on pretty well. <laughs> I hung on pretty well. Uh, but I think the 2020 election and the fear of the repeat of Trump was just too much to let, uh, I guess, anyone like me. I mean, I wasn't massively pro-Trump, but I just really don't like, you know, when you've had a lie, lot of lies told about you, you kind of get annoyed at the lies continuing. And my main purpose with pushing back on the media lies against Trump wasn't to be pro-Trump. It was just to be anti-media. So the people say, right. oh, my gosh, look how much they lie about Trump. Maybe they're lying about Steph, too, which they are. Uh, so that was sort <laughs> of the goal. Yeah, I mean, I am 
kind of surprised. Maybe, maybe the situation that happened was because I know there's a lot of like people getting all of a sudden removed as a follower, or maybe you're getting your stuff just wasn't showing up in my feed for some reason. But I remember like just laughing at your tweets. Like I just loved the stuff you tweeted. You were one of the best people on Twitter, I think. Um, oh, thank you. And I love to touch on this a little bit, but like I know people are probably tired of hearing like the big tech censorship thing being beat over the head and stuff. But, um, but uh, I think it's also important that we, we keep like bringing that up just because we're going to have people who come up just like I did in a couple of years and they're not going to remember people like you, um, unfortunately. Well, uh, there I mean, is, there is a pattern, right? Places, Sorry, right? there's a, a sort of tide comes in, tide comes out, big heartbeat right. of human communication which is that centralization leads to efficiency and broadcast, right? So you look at the Catholic Church uh, in, in sort of the, what are colloquially called the Dark Ages up until Martin Luther and the thesis at Wittenberg and so on. And so you had Latin as the common language, you had a universal Christendom, uh, and there was great communication, great spread, some great art, and actually I've been corrected by some people from my earlier opinions and accept that with, with, I think, good grace, that there was actually a fair amount of support for science and the exploration of the universe and so on. So that efficiency uh, of Latin as a common language and the church as a whole, that's, you know, like the big social media platforms. And then what happens, of course, is there's corruption that gets built into that, as I'm sure you're aware of. The, the big One of the big complaints that Martin Luther had about the Catholic Church was the sale of indulgences. So the Catholic Church felt that they were uh, the ownership, or they, they had ownership of all of the excess virtue that Jesus had and the saints had, and they could sell it to people who had sinned in return to get time of purgatory. And eventually it got to the point where you could buy your indulgences ahead of time, like I'm going to go do something bad, I'll need this ahead of time. And with that level of corruption uh, drew in Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, and there was a whole lot of deplatforming going on, right? And the sort of central uh, unity of social media, and in this case, the Catholic Church, was fragmented. That led to a lot of conflict. It also led to a certain amount of, of growth and, and secularism and, and more of a respect for philosophy and, and science and so on. You know, the good, the good and the bad. So in general, there is this pattern, right, that it's really, really efficient to have a lot of centralization. But with centralization comes power. With power comes corruption. Uh, with corruption comes censorship, and then people fragment, and there's progress from that. So this is why, you know, I'm on a whole bunch of different social media platforms now, some of them uncensorable, and some of them, you know, just stepping up and, and supporting philosophy as we as we move forward. But this pattern is very repetitive throughout human history, that everyone's excited about this big, the big audience, the big centralization, the common tongue, uh, and so on. But uh, as soon as you uh, get a common meeting place, you get corruption and the desire to control the narrative, and uh, the, the the power junkies swarm in, and, and then you've got to fragment and, and move forward that way. Um, for people who haven't been able to follow you since you've been um, wiped off Twitter, I guess, what have you been up to um, since then? Well, uh, so I basically decided to stop doing politics. Now, for those of you who kind of got into me while I was doing politics, it's interesting to some degree. It's a little bit <laughs> Groundhog Day uh, over and over again. It's not the same thing. Oh, no, they're doing something crazy on the left. Oh, no, <laughs> they're failing to stand up for their principles on the right. Gets a little bit uh, repetitive. But I didn't start with, with uh, politics. I started with sort of pure philosophy and, and self-knowledge. And my original tagline was the, the, the philosophy of personal and political liberty. The personal liberty has to come first. It has to come first. I would rather be paying 50% taxes and have a happy marriage 
than have an unhappy marriage and have zero taxes in terms of just like general happiness. And so I can control the quality of my marriage to some degree. I can't control directly in any way the amount of taxes that I have to pay. And so I really, really wanted people to focus on how philosophy could actually help improve their daily lives, the quality of their life, the happiness that they have, the the integrity that they can live with without going to jail for whatever, you know, disobeying the law, which I've always discouraged. So I really started with sort of personal philosophy, with with relationships, with uh, how to find good people in your life, how to deal with difficult people in your life. I'm a big fan of talk therapy and and self-knowledge and, you know, know thyself is the first commandment of Socrates, really the foundation of philosophy. So I was really, really focused on that stuff. And then, um, well, frankly, I wanted to grow the show. (laughs) So I started getting into philosophy. I started a show called True News. Uh, back of the day. And yeah, I mean, it partly just the general growth in, in podcasting and, and video casting and so on. But yeah, the show kind of grew up. And then uh, in 2014, 2015 in particular, 2016, we just went kind of nuts. And uh, I think at the at the end, I had like three quarters of a billion views and downloads uh, on the various platforms. So yeah, it was a really great thing. I'm kind of back to my roots. Uh, I'm working on a book on uh, parenting. I read one of my novels as an audiobook, which it's free. And I really, really strongly urge people, you know, if you want to put it on, uh, I, I'm, I'm a trained actor. I went to the National Theatre School of Canada, so I know how to do the different voices. And uh, it's uh, the story of a British family and a German family from World War One to World War Two, which is kind of autobiographical. I'm half Irish and half, uh, well, half Irish, British and half German. So I, I do the audiobook, uh, I'm doing my call-in shows, I'm doing a bunch of live streams, working on a book and uh, I guess at a bit more distance because I used to be like oh, I got to read politics because I'm going to do politics and I'll sort of browse it at the moment but uh, staying away from some of the COVID madness and all that kind of stuff is not the worst thing in the world so I'm kind of back to my roots and yeah, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Yeah my uh, my friend Brian told me to ask you about parenting so I guess um, what's new in parenting? <laughs> well there's less of it of course because uh, People always talk about the number of lives lost to COVID, but it's the seen versus the unseen. The real calamity of COVID and the lockdowns has been all the children who haven't been born. Vastly outnumbers the people who've died of COVID. But of course, the people who die of COVID, they are uh, there. You put them in the ground and you mourn them. The children who aren't born, you don't see them. So it's not really part of anyone's consciousness. It's like the people who die of COVID because of the lockdowns. You get something, you know, usually not very accurate on the death certificate. What people don't see is because of all the lockdowns, all the people who aren't getting cancer screenings, who aren't getting dietary advice, who aren't getting, uh, who, who can't get a knee replacement, so they're in pain, so they take a whole bunch of opiates and get addicted and then die from that, or suicide or depression, any all that kind of stuff, right? So with parenting, the non-aggression principle, I'm sure you're familiar with it, right? Do not initiate force against others. So non-aggression principle. So my, my mind, I'm, I'm not just like, I don't just have the cranium of Humpty Dumpty, but my mind kind of moves in circles a lot of ways. So I always see sort of overlapping circles. And I also was an entrepreneur for many years in the software field. So I'm kind of used to, you, you want to apply, like in life, in business, in love, in everything, you want to apply your efforts where you can have the most effect and the most control. If you believe in a particular moral value, then you really have to put it into practice 
first. If you want to have genuine credibility with others, there's no point lecturing people about the non-initiation the non-initiation of force like, oh, central banking is really bad. Yeah, yeah, it is for sure. Uh, imperialism is really bad. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, government schools really bad. Yes, yes, they are. But it's very abstract. If you really want to be able to communicate effectively the non-aggression principle, you must, must, must put it into practice in your own life. Now, so what I wanted to do when I looked at the non-aggression principle and spreading it was kind of simple. Actually, yeah, it is kind of simple. <laughs> yeah, is it really that simple? Yeah, it kind of is, right? So that there's a circle, right? And there's a circle is, where is the most violence in the world that we can do the most about? These two things, right? So big violence, yeah, you've got genocides, you've got wars, you've got predations upon the next generation, you've got theft and, and unfunded liability. We can't do much about those. <laughs> we can't do much about those. So the most violence in the world that we can do the most about, right? That's where philosophy should be, right? That's where you should be applying your attention, right? It's sort of like if you're 300 pounds and there are fat people in Samoa, and you say, well, I'm going to spend my whole life eating like a pig and then trying to deal with fat people in Samoa. It's like, no, 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 you lose weight yourself and then go help the fat people in Samoa, whatever, right? So when I looked at these, I still probably have somewhere in my notes these basic drawings that I did back at the beginning of all of this. I said, okay, where, where's the most violence that people can do the most about? Or another way of putting it is, where's the most violence that people can deal with without going to jail? Right? Because they say, oh, taxation is theft. You say, yeah, but you don't pay your taxes. You go to jail, so pay your taxes, right? So I looked at the most violence that you can do the most about, and that is violence within the family, spanking in particular. You know, it's not even that long ago, and the, the, the data is a little dated now, but probably not more than 10 years or so, like 90% of parents spank. And they spank a lot. I mean, some of the real-time studies of spanking has, have kids being hit multiple times a day, and for, for nothing, like I just posted something today. It's a bit of a 2011 study. One researcher decided, he said, look, I just want to study parents yelling at kids, right? So he said, you know, got a bunch of parents. Would you mind wearing a recorder? Just go about your day. Forget it's there. And he got the tapes back and it was just like whack, 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 whack. Uh, and they were all, I think all of them but one were moms. And just like whacking kids, whacking kids for nothing, you know, for fighting with their sibling. Ooh, siblings fight, big deal, right? Or one mom was like trying to, read and the kid was turning the pages of the book because he wanted to see what came next and she hit him for that like there's crazy stuff 90 percent of parents hit and i assume it's more than that just some people don't like to admit it and of course the other parents even if they don't hit what do they do they they will take their kids and they will sit them down in the timeout square and they'll pick them up and put them back you know it's a form of incarceration as opposed to direct physical violence it's still you know try that with an adult and you go to jail right uh, so, or, or they'll send them to, to bed without food, or they'll lock them in their room, which is another form of incarceration and so on. And so, okay, there's the most violence that we can do the most about. Because, you know, I've been a stay-at-home dad for 12 and a half years now, never yelled at my daughter, never called her a name, <laughs> never hit her. It's, it's, and it's totally legal. <laughs> you you got to pay your taxes, but you don't have to hit your kids. It's, it's perfectly legal. I'm telling you out there, I'm not a lawyer, but I will, I'm willing to go out on a limb and, and give everybody this legal advice. It is perfectly legal to not hit your children, to not yell at your children, to not raise your voice at your children. So I began to talk about uh, peaceful parenting. This is what I phrase it, which is parenting. Like, what can you do if you don't have violence as your option? What can you do? I mean, this is the whole basis of the free market. The whole basis of the free market is 
how can society be organized if we're not thieving from each other from dawn till dusk? Like, what if we actually have property rights? What if we don't use violence to get our resources? What if we buy and build and trade? And, you know, we get the modern world, we get science, we get our standard of living. What's it like to live in a world where you don't have violence as your go-to solution? And so what is it like as a parent if you don't have violence as your go-to solution? And, I mean, I worked in a daycare when I was a teenager for many years. I never used any violence on the kids, <laughs> even as a teenager. It's not, really that, it's not really that hard to not hit people. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, for me, I can get through the day. Uh, you know, I don't crack anyone. I don't hit my kid. <laughs> I just don't, bump, don't punch my wife. It's not, not a big thing for me to get through the day. You know, no coffee? Okay, I'm with you there. That's a challenging thing, right? But, but not hitting people? I think we should be able to catapult from dawn till dusk without cracking people somewhere uh, along the way. And yeah, it turns out that, uh, that that actually is very doable. So I began to really promote in, in wild, childish Gambino optimism, I began to really sort of promote this idea of, okay, we like the non-aggression principle. And libertarians have been, if you sort of go back through the classical liberal canon, liberals have been talking about the non-aggression principle, very small to no government for at least 150 years. You could push it back a little further, but at least 150 years. And uh, what's happened? Well, in the time that we have been talking about, say, the American government for 150 years, it has gone from the smallest government in the world ever. American government in its founding and for the first 80 years was the smallest government the world has ever seen. And what's happened since? Well, by focusing on politics, by focusing on lecturing people about very big, abstract, economic and uh, philosophical and, and political minutiae, or principles, and it's a fair way to put it, the U.S. government has gone from the very smallest government the world has ever seen to the very largest government the world has ever seen, with the most military basis, the biggest amount of unfunded liabilities, the most surveillance and control over its citizenship. So like that, if, if, you, if you're advocating a diet and everybody just gets fatter and you go from advocating a diet to the thinnest people in the world and then by the end of it, they're the fattest people the world has ever seen, at some point you got to rethink your approach to communicating your diet. And so my sort of basic case was, look, most people, I mean, this is an old saying, right? Smart people learn conceptually, average people learn by in experience, usually bitter experience, and dumb people, they already know everything, so you can't tell them anything, right? But so I said, look, if we want to communicate the non-aggression principle, what we need to do, we need to live it in our own lives. We need to raise children following the non-aggression principle. It's perfectly legal. It's a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Children are the most helpless and dependent members of society. And the fact that we still get to hit them is unbelievably terrible and would be looked in the future like we look at slavery or cannibalism, maybe. So I said, look, let's, let's push back against spanking and let's raise kids that are the envy of the world. Let's raise kids that are the envy of the world. And then people will say, oh, wow, you guys are a happy family. Your kids love you. They're successful. They're verbal. They negotiate. Why? Because you don't yell at them. You don't hit them. You don't use violence against them. And if we believe in the non-aggression principle, then spanking is a total violation of the non-aggression principle because the only way you're allowed to use violence is in self-defense. And you can't claim that spanking children is self-defense. It makes no sense. It's not true at all. So I said, look, let's put politics aside. It's important, but it hasn't worked. And because I'm a highly results-based entrepreneur, like if you're an entrepreneur, if something doesn't work, you have to stop because you'll go out of business and you'll lose your life savings. And I remember when I was in the business world, I would sign these 
unholy amounts like because we had to make payroll and the bank was like oh i don't know if you're gonna have the money and you know we were waiting for a big check to come in and i would like sign these like i don't know twenty thousand dollars thirty thousand dollars which i'd be on the hook for outside of bankruptcy or whatever and i'm like so we really have to make things work because i can't have this amount of debt coming out of this business i can never get out of it right and so for me i'm just very practical that way is it working no it's not working let's try something else and I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great and moral if we applied the non-aggression principle, forget the politics stuff, because, you know, libertarian candidates are never getting more than a couple of percentage of the vote. In fact, it's been going down since the 80s, right? And, of course, this was the Ron Paul thing, so I got a lot of pushback on that, which I respect and understand. But I thought, gosh, you know, let's. this is about 15 years ago. I said, let's, let's just have kids and, and have wonderfully happy families, great relationships, great relationships with other kids, uh, homeschool and, and, and negotiate and, and don't use violence and don't threaten and don't call them names and don't yell, don't raise your voice. And that will be a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful demonstration of our values. And then people will look and say, I want some of that. Because, you know, fat guys can't sell diet books. And if you are using violence in your own life, if you're hitting your kids or yelling at your kids, and all you're talking about is how bad the Fed is, the Federal Reserve is, then people are like, I'm sorry, I can't hear what you're saying over what you're doing, which is you are using violence against unarmed and helpless people in your own life called your children. So if you're using violence and then you say the non-aggression principle is the right thing to do and taxation is theft, well, spanking is, is beating, spanking is hitting. So that was really the case. What's the most prevalent violence in the world, and that's spanking, that we can do the most about? You can control whether you spank or not. You can't control the Federal Reserve rate, but you can control whether you spank. You can't control whether the U.S. invades Afghanistan or, or Iraq or Syria, but you can control whether you hit your own kids. You can control whether you advocate for not hitting kids uh, in, in your social circle. And that was sort of my, uh, my goal, my approach. And uh, part of that, or I guess a the more volatile or, or less controversial. And of course, you know, when you're, when you're steeped in moral philosophy, you kind of forget what's controversial to the normies. You know, I, I use that. I know that sounds like a disrespectful phrase. I don't really mean it that way. But the people who aren't well-versed in philosophy, like, you know, if you, if you know how to speak Latin fluently and you'll probably break into Latin from time to time and forget that nobody knows it other than you and, you know, 12 other people. So what I did was I said, look, if, if you had people who were violent towards you as a child, like if you had abusive mom, abusive dad, and so on, uh, that's not good. They, they acted in a wrong way. Now, they may have acted in a way that they thought was right at the time. So, but, that you know, I, the way I grew up is it doesn't matter if things were thought to be right at the time. Nobody says, well, you know, but the slave owners, the, they thought it was right at the time. Like, that's just, we, we have a moral judgment that spirals back in time and that's sort of the basis of a lot of what we're evaluating in our cultures at the moment so i said you know talk to them and and so on because my particular concern was if you as a parent have people around you who are unapologetic users of violence against you and other children then how are you going to be able to raise your children with any kind of moral authority, right? Like it's really, really bad to hit kids. You know, here are the people who hit me, and they're totally welcome in my house, and I'm never going to say anything about it. So I said, you know, talk to them about it, try and work it out. And if they're relentlessly hostile and abusive and so on, even if you're, they're your parents, you know, the, the focus is on the next generation, and, and you don't have to have abusive people in your life. And so that was, you know... I. It felt like and still feels like, and I think is, you know, fairly logical progression. But 
I, I made, I mean, endless amounts of mistakes. And one of the mistakes was, and I know this sounds like a little bit of self-praise, but one of the mistakes was, you know, I, I have a pretty good conscience. I mean, it's not like I've never done anything wrong, but, I, you know, I've, I've, had, I've got a pretty good conscience. So when someone comes along to me like, you know, here's a moral rule you should live by, I may not have lived it perfectly or consistently, but, you know, I haven't been cruel to children. I, you know, I haven't uh, done any of that stuff. And so I think, like, in putting these ideas out, I'd kind of tripped over a landmine, which was how many parents out there really feel bad about what they did to their kids and don't want to apologize and therefore get mad at me for trying to raise the moral standards, right? Like the, the people who own the slaves aren't very big fans of the abolitionists and, and the, so on, right? So, yeah, that so peaceful parenting is really the distillation of the arguments around you know, we are a society that, you know, there's an old saying that says you can judge a society. I think it's from Dostoevsky. You can judge a society by how it treats its prisoners. no. No, you judge a society by how it treats its children. You judge a society by how it treats its children. Why? Because children have no voice. They have no economic or political um, independence or rights. And they are the vast unchosen members of society. They did not choose to be born, and they certainly did not choose their parents. Right. So this was my sort of logical thing, which was if a woman was through a forced cultural mechanism forced to become married to a man who then abused her and then she said i'm not happy with this relationship at least i think a reasonably moral person would say well you didn't choose to be in the relationship he is abusing you uh, you have the right to leave uh, you don't you're not you're not required to stay anymore it's not this is not the culture you, you don't have to stay that's a reasonable thing right so of course if people uh, said, oh, I was abused as a child uh, in my show, and uh, I would say, well, yeah, I think that's really bad. I think you should get some therapy. I think you should talk to your parents. You're not obligated to stay if they're unrepentant child abusers. And that's, but see, people just don't, we don't see that. We don't, we, we have nothing but sympathy for a woman who was forced into a marriage and then was abused by her husband. But we don't seem to have nearly as much sympathy for children who are born into a family that abuses them. And the woman who's in the marriage, she could have run away, she could have become a refugee, she could have uh, done any number of things to, to sort of avoid or get out of the situation. I mean, look at High and Hersey Alley, she managed to get all the way from, where was it, Ethiopia or, or Somalia, Somalia, I think it was, all the way to become a politician in Holland, if I remember rightly. Whereas children, we're born into these families, no choice. We didn't choose people, we didn't choose to be born, we have no choice, no rights, no freedoms. So surely... And this is what I was raised with, and I'm sure you heard the same thing. Where there is greater power disparity, there are also greater moral standards, right? So you work in some place, you can date a co-worker. Most places will let you date a co-worker. But if you're the boss, you can't date your employee because there's too much of a power disparity, right? You look at Harvey Weinstein, or you look at this. Not only was the crimes that they committed or alleged to have committed uh, egregious, but because they had power over these actresses, it's considered to be even worse. You look at Bill Cosby and the rapes. Uh, he had power and authority and, and fame and, and money and, and all of that. And so where the power disparity is greater, there the ethics need to also be greater. But we don't have the same thing. With families, it's weird when you think about it. And I'm sort of trying to <laughs> dislodge this, this matrix of the family structure as we understand it. We actually have a situation in a system which is truly incomprehensible. 
from any rational standpoint, we say we must protect the most vulnerable in society, and where there is a greater power disparity, there must be greater and higher moral standards. And the less chosen the relationship is, the higher the moral standards we must have. And so if we look at children, they didn't choose to be there, they have no power, no authority, no independence, no capacity to escape, in most circumstances, abusive uh, situations. And there we have the very lowest moral standards in society. You can yell at them, you can hit them, you can uh, starve them, you can lock them in a room, You, all of these things. And now, in some places, spanking has become illegal, but most places, there's still vast majority of parents yell at their children, the vast majority of parents still smack their children. And it just goes to show how little we actually are a moral society. How so much morality is just posturing and, and politics and, you know, if I claim to be a victim or I can get money from the government or I can make people feel guilty or whatever. But if we actually were to say, this is my challenge to libertarians, okay, non-aggression principle, okay, where's the biggest violation we could do the most about? That's spanking. And as a society as a whole, should we not have our very highest moral standards apply to parents? before absolutely everyone and everything else. Because, you know, when they say, oh, well, society's judged by how it treats its prisoners, I mean, criminal prisoners and so on. If we treat children well, we won't have any criminal prisoners, or maybe just a few if they get a brain tumor and it dissolves their neofrontal cortex or whatever, right? Mm. And I did a whole series called The Bomb in the Brain. I, I spoke with the experts, ran through all the data. Adult criminality adult addiction, adult dysfunction, adult promiscuity, entirely the result of child abuse. If you fix childhood, you fix the world. And if you don't fix childhood, everything else you do is just chasing the illusion of efficacy. So yeah, peaceful parenting is sort of my hymn to making this case uh, in a sort of very logical, data-driven, methodical way to make sure that people do understand that if we're not fixing childhood, everything else that we try to do is just a fool's quest. Sorry for the long speech. I hope that <laughs> at no, least encapsulates. It was very, um, very informing. Um, but I always see like, especially on like Facebook, I see older people post that they can tell that the newer generation hasn't been beaten as kids or something. So I've always wondered about spanking. Like, does it actually make better adults or does it um, uh, make horrible human beings? Um, like how, what the data is on that. And then secondly, I guess, uh, another question I'd have is what is the route you take when you have a kid who's badly behaving? Um, what what do you do in that situation? Well, I certainly try not to behave worse by hitting a child. I mean, you can't complain about a child's behavior and then hit it. I'm not saying you are making that case, right? right. But logically, right. you can't complain about a child's behavior and then hit the child and say that the problem is the child's behavior because now you've just behaved a whole lot worse. So the boomer question of, of Facebook, oh, these kids, they're so disrespectful, they can't get their acts together, turn your baseball cap around, pull up your pants, drop your Xbox controller and go make something of your life and all the okay boomer stuff that goes on. So the big, and we'll get to the spanking data in a sec. So the big issue with the children raised my, I'm just under boomer, under the boomer cutoff, my generation below, the Gen X is the millennials. So the right. big issue is not spanking or a lack of spanking the big issue is, is issues twofold number one abandonment 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 the abandonment being that moms 
drop the kids at daycare, drop the kids with strangers, had nannies, whatever, so they could race back to work, so they could pay a lot of taxes and drive down the wages of men. Right? It's all complete. Like, it, it makes no economic sense, but just the power of propaganda, right? So the generation post-boomers, the boomers, as we know, I mean, lots to say about them, and I, I won't be too harsh about anything, but basically they lived life for themselves and their own particular pleasures and if they wanted to get a job and they wanted to have kids well anybody can raise your kids but only i can do my job which of course is the complete opposite <laughs> of what is true uh, you know whatever job you have you know like eight minutes after you leave on the last day everyone's forgotten all about you but your kid will remember that time you didn't go see the play or or go and play with them uh, at the playground they'll remember that stuff forever and Parental abandonment is experienced by children in daycare. If you're, if you're in daycare for 30 or more hours a week, you have virtually the same symptoms as if your parents have died, as if your parents have abandoned you. And that, you know, I understand for children, particularly babies, infants, and toddlers, parental abandonment is the most stressful thing that can occur. Not being paid attention to by your parents is worse than your parents beating you for a child, which is why children will act badly just to get parental attention. If the only way they can get parental attention is to provoke and be annoying and be difficult and cause trouble, they will do that. Because no parental attention, I mean, we understand this evolutionarily speaking, like no parental attention is death. Because for most of human history, there wasn't enough food to go around for everyone. And so if your parents didn't care about you, if, they, if you didn't provide even some value, maybe you can, maybe I'll just be a punching bag to them and I'll give them value that way. Uh, you, you wouldn't make it. You wouldn't, especially when you had tribes on the go and tribes who were nomadic and so on, just leave the kids behind. And, you know, kids had a very, very precarious existence throughout most of human history. Like half of kids didn't even make it to the age of five. So you had to be pretty damn pleasing to your parents. So parental abandonment is the most existentially terrifying thing that a child can go through. And the reason why a peaceful society requires attachment, it's an amazing thing. The human, I mean, the human brain, the human body, incredible. Because what our bodies are scanning for is what kind of society are we going to live in? We don't know. We don't know when we're born. We don't know if we're going to live in peace or war and in, in feast or famine. <laughs> we, we have no idea. We don't know if we're living in stable pair bond society or big, giant, hippie, flesh pit, orgy society. We have no idea. We have no idea what sexual norms there are. We have no idea what the cultural standards are. So when we're born, we're just like narwhals. You're just scanning all the time. What's going on? What kind of society am I going to have to live in? Now, when you take a kid and you dump the kid in daycare, the parent experiences maternal abandonment, and that programs the child, that programs the child for situation of scarcity, for a situation of want, for a situation of extraordinary low levels of social trust, for a situation where promiscuity, the spray and pray method of having kids is far better than pair bonding. Because, and, and this is particularly true of fatherlessness. So girls and boys, when they're born, they're scanning for the presence of males. If there are males, it means it's probably not a time of war. If there are males, it means that you're in a high-trust society, you're in a stable, secure society, and you adapt emotionally and in every other way you adapt to that leave-it-to-beaver society as opposed to some, you know, chaotic uh, 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 chaz in Seattle society that's going on. And so 
the boomers, so they take the kids and drop them in daycare. The kids aren't getting breastfed. They're not getting much attention. And it's not because of the fault of the daycare workers. You just, you can't, it takes, it takes 10 minutes to properly change a child's diaper. You've got five kids. That's 50 minutes out of every hour because they're going to poop or pee every hour. And then you're transferring fecal matter. The kids get sick. It's just a mess. And they don't get breastfed. And breastfeeding, we know, adds a significant number of IQ points to the developing child, as does, you know, skin-to-skin contact, eye contact, all of that stuff, right? So if you have children who grow up in a society of plenty, but every emotional trigger that is being developed in them is war, chaos, disaster, famine, violence, lack of bonding, then you are priming people to be fundamentally out of step with their environment. And we know, I mean, this is how deep the biology goes. A woman, a girl who grows up without a father, starts menstruating significantly earlier because her body is scanning and saying, okay, how are we, how are we going to reproduce here? Because the genes just photocopy, photocopy. That's all they want to reproduce. How are we going to reproduce here? Is it stable, delay gratification, pair bonding, maturity, you know, a, a Christian society or a society of peace and relative stability or whatever? Or is it, you know, wham, bam, thank you, man, move on to the next one like you're, you know, some adult person in Jamaica or something, right? And, and generally, it's tropical versus cold climate, right, where, where these things tend to, to split. And again, I've done a whole series on this if people want to check it out. It's called Gene Wars, uh, R versus K Selection. R Selection is where you just have a whole bunch of kids. You don't really invest into them, and most of them aren't going to make it like tadpoles or baby bunnies or something like that. And that's your best reproductive strategy. And you just keep having kids till you run out of food. And generally what happens is you're preyed upon by the larger, more complex animals. Like if you're a rabbit, you're preyed upon, preyed upon by owls and, and, and hawks and foxes and wolves, larger, more complex organisms. And the way that you survive and don't run out of food is you just get preyed. But because you can't do anything about being preyed upon, like a rabbit can't fight off a, a fox or it's going to get its ass chewed off, right? And so because you can't do anything, to deal with whatever is preying upon you. And, and it could be things like, uh, of course, in Africa, it's, it's the, the viruses and the bacteria and so on. And, and, and of course, the big, the big cats, the big predators and so on. So you just, you can't control anything. There's no point pair bonding. There's no point investing in your offspring because all they have to do is, is run away and eat grass, right? So you just have as many kids as possible and you just move on, no pair bonding, high sex drive, uh, you know, making love like rabbits, banging like rabbits or whatever, or, you know, breeding like rabbits. And that's our, that's our selection. It's a perfectly viable strategy for a particular kind of survival. Now, on the K side, it's much different. K selection, you have fewer offspring. And you work to train that offspring in general, right? You work to you think of the, the, the wool pack teaching the, 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 the babies to, to hunt, right? You see the little lions, they're all piling over each other, learning how to hunt and chase. And even dogs in, in households will creep up and cats will creep up. And they're always constantly practicing. You get the lasers and they're like all over the place trying to practice how to hunt because they can do something about it. They can because their skill depends on whether they eat. You don't need any skill if you're a rabbit to chew on some grass <laughs> everywhere, just eat, right? Whereas if you're a, a fox or a hawk, you need a lot of skill, you need a lot of training, you, you've got to have fewer kids and you invest more in them. And so we have societies where we are, and again, it's not a plan or anything, it's just the way it's played out. We are training children for chaos, for instability, for aggression, for violence, for alienation, for spray and pray 
rabbit style reproduction without care without thought and this is where you know uh, the, the sort of hookup culture comes from it's just rabbit culture <laughs> it's all it is it's just a bunch of bunnies uh doing the hookup stuff as opposed to you know the case selected thing which is you got to have a chaperone and no sex before marriage and you've got to declare yourself before god you're going to stay together forever because when you have that foundation of a pair bonded couple that is going to stay together then you've got a father who's present, you've got a mother who's present, you've got stability, and the children grow up in peace and serenity and security, and and a pair-bonded nuclear family by far, by far, by far, the safest place for children, bar none. The, the statistics, I mean, are beyond appalling. Like, if, if you are the child of a single mother, and you have a non-father male adult living in the home, you are 35 times more likely to be abused, not 35%, but 35 times more likely to be abused. It is hell out there for children in the disintegrated family structure, and then that's what happens. They grow up. So then, of course, the kids grow up, and they don't have much ambition, and they're maybe uh, too much into drugs or video games or other forms of dissociated distractions. They have hookup culture. They, they can't get themselves started. And rather than say... We abandoned these kids. We ran off to pursue careers rather than raising our children. We expected, you know, Guatemalan nannies who barely spoke English to transfer the entire canon of Western values <laughs> to our children. Uh, because we were chasing the almighty dollar, we've really done something wrong. We should try and fix it. They look down, and because they have really deep down, at least I hope, somewhat of a guilty conscience, they say, ah, you know what the problem is? Those little brats didn't get hit enough. Now, here's the sad thing. If they had gotten hit, they would actually be better because at least then someone would have been paying them attention, which is not what they got. So um, you mentioned being fatherless, and you've also mentioned like breastfeeding, skin to skin. Can you tell us anything about same-sex uh, parenting? I don't know much about the data of mm -hmm. same-sex parenting. And it really depends, I suppose, because when you talk same-sex, it could be homosexual in terms of male, it could be homosexual in terms of female. Now, the statistics in the male gay community are, of course, rampant promiscuity. That doesn't mean that there can't be pair bonding, but it's kind of tough in the culture as a whole to get that kind of stable pair bonding. The big problem with lesbian relationships is they are, and I think it's by quite a bit, they are the most violent human relationships on the face of this earth outside of like government and, and citizen and so on. So uh, the issue that I would have in terms of that is, okay, what levels of violence? And this is why, you know, you hear all about the patriarchy and, and girl power and so on. It's like, yeah, but when the women run the relationships, they're the most violent relationships around. Uh, and that's, you know, and this whole cycle of violence, this is another thing that I get in trouble for. So <laughs> welcome to my world of getting into trouble. <laughs> but the other thing, of course, is I, I consistently talk about this uh, the, the role of women in the cycle of violence, the role of women in the cycle of violence, because the vast majority of children are hit by women, by mothers, by primary caregivers, grandmothers, and so on. And if we can't solve that problem, then trying to solve the problem of violence is impossible. It's, it's functionally impossible to solve the problem of violence if we're not talking about women's role because women of course get to you know play victim and faint on the couch and be and, and everybody rushes to their defense and and we you know we don't want to upset women because they hold the key to reproduction and our genes are like do not annoy the ovaries we need the ovaries otherwise we're doomed right and i had this famous egg meme i suppose on <laughs> on twitter you may remember it it's now lurking uh, elsewhere on the web so 
if we can't convince women to stop hitting kids, and men do, and I'm not trying to excuse men, but we know, we know men are bad guys at times. Where this has been hammered into this for like thousands of years, the sort of the, the, the caveman who clubs the woman and drags her off, and you know, like the, we know that men's capacity for violence is there. But we constantly overstep or sidestep women's capacity for violence. Like we always forget that in interpersonal relationships where there's violence, half the time, half the time, it's the women who initiate it. And the women, of course, have the, the, the state on their side for the most part, which makes them you know, even more prone to violence uh, if, if they're that way inclined. And so this is another thing, you know, like, I'm sorry, this is just where the facts lie. I desperately want a world that's more peaceful. I desperately want a world that's more sustainable economically and and in particular in terms of, of relationships. I want fewer people in prison. I mean, all the things that every decent person would agree on, I want. It's just that I have relentlessly followed the data, which is, you know, spanking, neglect, child abuse. I mean, sexual abuse, my God. I mean, Black Lives Matter? Hey, man, I'm all for that. You know, I'm all for, I, I want the black community to do well, to do better. Everybody does who's a decent person, right? Not much we can do as, you know, I guess two whitish guys. There's <laughs> not a huge amount we can do about the fact that half of black girls report being raped by a black man before they get to the age of 18. Like, I can't fix that. I'm what I'm, I can't, like, suit up and <laughs> protect all the little black girls. I can't, you know, and, and this is part of fatherlessness as well, right? I mean, uh, because in many places, three quarters of the black kids are growing up without a dad. So I'm just, I, I, I want to solve problems. And I'm just, you know, for, for better or for worse, I'm cursed with the relentless data head. You know? <laughs> I'm just like a train track on the data. And the data is we can't solve the problem of violence until women accept their role in the cycle of violence, which goes very much against the grain because we all just want to nurture and protect and take care of women. And I love women, delightfully incomprehensible creatures. But, you know, self-ownership is self-ownership and responsibility is responsibility. And they do the most violence to the most helpless in the world. And that's, that's a tough thing for people to wrap their head around, that, that women do the most violence to the most helpless. You know, guys get into bar fights, maybe the guy's six inches shorter than he is, and that's being a bully. But a woman is like six times the size of a toddler, and she'll still hit him, right? So it's, it's a worse abuse of, of power differential and disparity. So women commit the most violence against the most helpless in society. And that's just a grim fact that we need to deal with. But men don't want to deal with it because maybe they were hit by their own mother or caregiver and it's kind of uh, emotionally tense for them. And also, uh, we don't want to upset the ladies because <laughs> got to reproduce and all that. But, you know, I'm, I'm just, all I care about is just solving problems. I, that's all I care about. I don't care about the ideology. I don't care about, and, and maybe I should care more about people's sensi sensitivities and sensibilities, but I don't think a lot of progress has ever been achieved by being overly polite to the bad habits of bad people. So... Uh, so with, with regards to spanking, I'll just touch on this briefly. The data about spanking is very clear. I've done a number of interviews with Dr. Elizabeth Gershoff. People can find that on my show. Uh, FDR Podcast, that's free domain radio, used to be radio. FDRpodcast.com is a whole search feature. You can just look for Elizabeth, and I've got, I think, two, I think three interviews with her. The data is very clear. The data is very clear. Spanking, all it will do is produce very, very short-term compliance and then long-term completely the opposite. You get rebellion, you get antisocial personality disorder, you get, you, you are simply creating the opposite. Violence will always create the opposite of its intended goal. The violence will always create the opposite of its intended goal. I don't know, like, uh, oh, you know, we're going to use state 
coerced money to make sure that the world is kept safe from coronaviruses. Oh, look at that. It produced the opposite of its intended goal. Oh, I know. We're going to have the welfare state so that we can reduce income inequality. Oh, look, income inequality is getting bigger because people are getting trapped in an underclass. And oh, we're going to have uh, the Federal Reserve to smooth out the economy. And it's like, yeah, it's now the smooth downhill to a Weimar style hyperinflation or whatever, right? So violence always produces the opposite of its intended goal. And hitting children doesn't produce respect from them. It produces contempt because they all, all you're doing is saying, I'm bigger and I can get away with it. I'm bigger and I can get away with it. Might rules, violence rules, size rules, power rules. And then we wonder why children grow up and have trouble focusing on a stateless society or a smaller government. I mean, you've just taught them that you're bigger, you're stronger, you can get away with it. And, and, and by the way, kids, make sure you don't bully. <laughs> you know, these government schools, like the government schools survive because and only exist because guns are pointed at parents and others. Guns are pointed at adults to fund the schools. And the teacher's salary is blood money from a stick-up called the state. And then they say, well, you've got to not bully. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you're getting paid. <laughs> it's worse than bullying because you can't even get away. So... Yeah, that, that's all I'm saying is, is we got this principle. And it's a funny thing, you know, it's one thing I couldn't help but notice. Or it's a, maybe not the most staggering observation, but I'll mention it anyway. So progress is when you just get one true principle and build from there. And that's all. It's all. Progress is just like get one solid principle. Don't bullshit yourself. Just build it from there consistently. Like, again, okay, what's progress in physics? Oh, what if the speed of light is just constant? Well, that doesn't make any sense. What if you've got two spaceships flying away at opposite speeds? And what, uh, right? Well, okay. No, okay. Speed of light is constant. C, man, that's it. Speed of light is constant. And we get the modern world. You know, nuclear weapons, not so good. Uh, although they've prevented a conventional war. Nuclear power, much better, uh, and so on. So, And we get a foundational understanding of the world because we just got one principle, which is true, and we just build everything from there. Or, I mean, look at Newton, right? Apple falls on his head. And he's like, hey, wait, wait a minute. What if, oh, it's going to be nuts. What if everything falls? What if gravity is a universal constant? What if the apple falls on me? I'm falling towards the earth, but I can't go down too far because there's the earth. The earth is falling around the sun. The sun is falling around the galaxy. Like what if, what if we just have some one sense of principle, but it's true, and we just build from there? Human rights, right? The, the, the founding declarations of the United States, all men are created equal. It's okay, what if we take that principle and extend it and blow out slavery? Then you get the modern world. There's no modern world without the end of slavery because you can't get labor-saving devices that are foundation of our wealth as long as everybody's investing in labor of slaves. You don't get machinery. I mean, you see this now with uh, people, everyone wants to raise the minimum wage, which just means you get robots and touchscreens to replace workers. So... So you just take one principle, okay, everyone's created equal. Everyone should be equal before the law, okay. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was originally, of course, life, liberty, and property, but the southern states didn't want that because it would have pushed back against slavery. So, yeah, life, liberty, and property. You can't both be property and own property. So you just take that one principle. Everyone should be equal before the law, and that blows away slavery, creates the entire modern world. So you just take these couple of principles, gravity, speed of light, human rights, just boom, just make them universal. No bullshit, no exceptions, no asterisks, no crap, no folds and wrinkles of the law based upon special interest garbage. Just boom, straight. And so I'm like, okay, non-aggression principle, man. What if the non-aggression principle is like C, is like gravity, it's like human rights. We're just like, okay, let's just build from that. 
Let's just build from that. No bullshit, no wrinkles, no asterisks, no exceptions, no Mobius strip, no justifications for the opposite. Just boom, right there. That's the biggest progress that we need. It's everybody accepts the non-aggression principle. Everybody. It's what we teach kids. What do we teach kids? Don't hit, don't steal, don't push, right? Don't, don't take, don't push. Respect property and persons. Uh, everybody in their personal lives respects the non-aggression principle, just as everybody can catch an apple when it falls from the tree. So you take what is personal and you make it universal. <laughs> I was just thinking, I remember when I was a kid, I don't know if you ever did this when you were a kid, so when I first heard about the speed, I was a total astronomy geek. We, we were talking about trains. Yeah, I was a model railroad geek. I slept under my model railroad. I was a total astronomy geek. And I remember sitting in my room and I'd have my hand on the light switch. And I knew there was a speed of light, right? Because I, I remember because I would watch a, 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 my friends playing soccer. If it was a long way away, they'd kick the ball and it would be like half a second. Then you could hear the kick of the ball, right? The same, what is 600 and something miles an hour for the speed of sound? And I remember sitting uh, uh, by my door. I had my hand on the light switch. And what I would do is I'd hit the light and I'd close my eyes. And I'd turn it on. Hit the light and I'd close my eyes. Do you know what I was trying to do? I was trying to see my room half in light and half in darkness, you see. Now, of course, what are we, 30 frames a second on our eyeballs? Like, there's no way. It's way too fast, right? It's two and a half seconds to the moon for the light. It's eight minutes from the sun. Like, there's no way I was ever going to catch the room half in light and half in darkness. So if we just say, okay, the non-aggression, like, the, the progress is just taking one true principle and refusing to allow for exceptions. That's all it is. That's all it is. Because if you look at the world, okay, it looks really flat. Looks really, really. You go out to the prairies. I don't know what Maryland is like. You go out to the prairies. You go out to Utah. You're pretty flat where you are, right? Looks pretty damn flat. But, but, you know, you look at uh, the moon. Hey, it's pretty round. Look at the sun. Hey, it's pretty round. You look at Mars. Uh, maybe you need a telescope. It's pretty round. You can even see Venus kind of round. Okay, so what if we just take the principle that stuff's kind of round? And I guess you could even see that in comets, right? So you take the principle stuff's really round and you look down at the ground. Okay, well, that makes sense, right? Because gravity and mass, everything's going to end up kind of round because you've got a central gravitational pull and it's going to flatten things for the most part. And so for me, it's like, okay, well, all of the progress that we love is taking one firm principle and just making it universal and gritting your teeth and resisting our impulse to create exceptions because, oh my God, are we so tempted to create exceptions to all of our morals because exceptions are where the profits are right? If you can get people not to steal from each other and then you can tax them, well, you're still stealing from them, but you've created an exception to thou shalt not steal called taxation that's made hugely profitable. And so every time we create a moral rule, it's so profitable to create an exception for ourselves, for our friends, right? You and I, we can't counterfeit any money, but that's all central banking ever does is counterfeit money. They don't even bother printing anything. You just type it into their own bank account. They don't have to pull a George Floyd and put a wet bill on a convenience store and end up uh, dead and, and uh, ensconced in stone, right? So the government and, and power as a whole is all about creating moral rules for us and exceptions for themselves. It, I mean, I actually think morality was simply created for the exceptions. Like the morality is just the slate of hand that's used to create the exceptions, which is where the real profit is, right? You know, the old thing, like uh, if you're a bad and amateur thief, you... You rob a bank. If you're a intermediate thief, you own a bank. And if you're a really great superhero thief, you own a central bank, right? So 
we are so tempted. Every time we create a moral rule, the first thing we want to do is create an exception. Just, okay, but my friend and not this and you know we're just because it's so profitable right if you get if you can get if, i mean if you were the only thief in the world right you, you'd make out like a bandit because nobody would lock anything up nobody would take care of anything there wouldn't be keys in anything everybody would leave the keys in their car and and if something went missing they'd say oh i must have just lost it or i don't know maybe somebody took my car by mistake and, and there would be no police They'd so if you were the only thief in the world, man, you, you'd have the greatest life ever. As far as just like material acquisition goes, it would be totally easy. If there are too many thieves, like communism or national socialism, then the whole system collapses. So, you know, you, you try to create this equilibrium where there's enough thieves, but not too many that it becomes too difficult to be a thief. And there's this predator-prey relationship that goes on in human society. But what if, what if all of the great things that we have are the result of people taking basic moral principles we all accept in our own life and just saying this crap is universal <laughs> like this just universalize the hell out of this thing no asterisks no exceptions no double blind clauses no footnotes just boom non-aggression principle what if we built a society from the ground up non-aggression principle what if we built a view of the universe where the laws of physics were truly constant and universal, but then we actually end up with a true understanding of a universe, so we can, some probe, we can send some probe to Pluto. It's amazing. It's amazing. Send people to the moon and back. What if we just took the non-aggression principle and said, like, no fooling, let's just, that's it, man. That's what we do. We all accept it in our lives. What if our lives were the whole thing? What, there was there no, what if there was no differentiation between the personal and the universal, just as Newton, right? The apple falls on his head. And he's like, well, I'm falling on the ground. Ground's falling on the, around the sun. What if the personal and the universal are the same thing? What if that which we accept in our lives, the non-aggression principle, is universal? And, and we just organize things that way. It's going to be a hell of a fight. <laughs> it's got a hell of a battle, I can tell you this. I've been fighting it for 40 years. But what if? What if? We'll get there, man. It's not going to be pretty getting there. But when we get there, it will be like awakening from a nightmare that's been going on for 150,000 years. All right. And then um, I guess my final question would be, um, why do you think it is that women are more inclined to, uh, I guess, hit their children? I don't, I, I normally have my Rolodex of easy answers. <laughs> so that's, that's a good one. You think I would have come up with something about that at some point. Um, <laughs> so... So women grow up with a lot of deferment, right? Are you, are you a dating guy? Are you a married guy? I'm currently single. Currently single, okay. So there's something that Nietzsche said. It's kind of true, right? He said that the very famous, the very rich, the very powerful, and the very beautiful never know the truth because everybody, even unconsciously, just subtly changes things just a little bit <laughs> around, around these people, right? So women, when they're young are the queens of the universe. They're the queens of genetics. I have no issue with this. It's just, it's the way things are. And Lord knows they, they carry and bear children, which, you know, I, I, I couldn't, you know, I have too much change in my back pocket. I feel uncomfortable. I don't know what they're doing. It's incredible, right? But so women get a lot of deferral as a whole. They get deferral from politicians, you know, the old thing, the real victims of war are women, you know, like, uh, men hyper-addicted to heroin, women most affected. You know, it's, it's just, it's the way, the way things are, not really much you can do about it other than just observe it as a natural phenomenon of uh, our bifurcated uh, genders. And so women get a lot of deferral, and at least in the West, right? Obviously in other cultures, not so much. 
And so they don't necessarily have to negotiate as much because they hold the golden eggs, right? They hold the golden eggs. And because we come from a pretty complex, pretty high IQ society, we can't just do a pray and spray and move on. Like we have to stay and raise our kids, you know, kids take males, like 25, 27 is when our brains finally mature. For women, it's I think in the early 20s. So you need a quarter century of child raising before your kids are full adults, right? And so we need women to commit to our children, to commit to us, to commit to the transfer of values, which they've been sadly woefully talked out of over the last 70 years or so, which is one of the reasons we're losing all our values is women won't transfer them and men are too busy out getting resources and defending what they think of defending the country for that. So women get a lot of deferral. And of course, if a man goes up and really challenges a woman and she doesn't really like it, which she may not. And it is a well-known, it's a well-known field in psychology. It's called the WOW, uh, sorry, the um, uh, WAR, WAR. It's, it's called the WAR, a W-A-W, Women Are Wonderful. That, it, it's a very well-studied field, uh, area of psychology where women are just perceived as, as more nurturing, as nicer, as better, as, uh, you know, that's just this deferral that goes on with regards to women. So I think that if a woman is just used to having people defer to her, and if, if, you, if the woman doesn't like your challenges towards her, there's like 10 other guys lined up to, who want to ask her out, and, and she doesn't have to put up with any of that stuff. So I think that there's a certain amount of grandiosity, um, minor megalomania, maybe a little bit of narcissism. It's not female nature as a whole. It's a whole complex thing, right? Women used to... So, so the power that women have is balanced by the dependence that they have, right? So the, the youthful, romantic, sexual market value power that women have is more than compensated in nature, as these things tend to be, by the fact that after the woman becomes pregnant her sexual market value in a free market society, in a free society, her sexual market value collapses for everyone except her husband right, or the father of her child. And so the youthful sexual power is there so that women will make a great choice because after they've made their choice and they become pregnant and they are pregnant, they have a baby, they're breastfeeding, their looks go a little bit, their bodies age, women can get white hair just from being pregnant and breastfeeding sometimes, then they're incredibly dependent. So the early power transitions to the unbelievable dependence that women have on a man to provide for them for like the next 20 years, assuming even with just one kid, but for more kids, it's even more because, you know, you're not a dad yet, I assume, but man, it's like, it's a big job and it like goes on and on and on and, you know, stay home dad again, you know, uh, um, you know my daughter, you know, get up at nine o'clock in the morning. She's not much of a morning person any more than I am. And you're up and, and she goes to bed, you know, latish, and, and that's just your day, right? It's your day. It's a, it's a very big deal. And so the woman is then, and, and of course, prior to birth control, the woman is having a child usually every two to three years because, you know, she may not be able to get pregnant while she's breastfeeding. That's one of nature's kindnesses. And then she's going to have kids from 20 to 40, you know, and half of those kids won't make it and blah, 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 right? So this youthful sexual power that women have is balanced by the dependence, or it used to be. Now, of course, the youthful sexual power is not balanced by the dependence because, of course, the woman can simply run to the government to get resources. So if the woman chooses the wrong man, she can run to the government. If the woman does not save for her own retirement, she can run to the government. 
if the woman needs health care, she can run to the government. And so because this youthful sexual power is not balanced by any kind of dependency upon a voluntary relationship, such as uh, pleasing a husband or being a contributing member of the household in a positive way or something like that, then this, you know, they, they talk about how, like, men aren't growing up and you've got this perpetual adolescence and failure to launch. Mm. The youthful, narcissistic sexual vanity of many women, not all, many women, and just for those who don't know, I'm, I'm very happily married for 20 years and all that, so there's tons of exceptions, but there's a sort of general trend, is that the milking of looks and deference and dates and dinners and trips and you know that's supposed to be maybe a year or two while the woman's picking her mate and then she's supposed to get busy with having kids and not be that perpetual kid anymore so to speak or teenager and now because women can just keep doing that stuff they don't have to settle down they don't have to worry about hitting the wall in terms of money and finances they don't have to worry about running out of money in their old age because well they will eventually because social security is going to run run out of money and so there's this kind of weird perpetual youth that that goes for women and they're not using that youthful coin to buy a great man who's going to protect and provide and take care of and and shelter and and provide and and, and uh, give resources and so they're just kind of cruising along with this stuff. And I think if they do eventually have kids, as a lot of them do, they're just so used to being deferred to that they're just so used to getting their way and, you know, in a sense, stamp your feet and, and the world comes to pick you up, right, and, and take care of you. So I think that's one aspect of it. And I think the other aspect of it, because this doesn't explain why there was child beating in the past, which of course there was. I mean, it's just brutal stuff. You ever, you ever want to be horrified? Uh, look at what happened to, Rene, uh, to um, uh, Rousseau's children, right? Rousseau was a great defender of, of children, apparently, in the abstract, but his own children ended up in these wretched orphanages where they almost certainly died. So in the past, though, violence is the shadow cast by anti-rationality. Anti-rationality, which is why you get shootouts in uh, organized crime, but you don't get shootouts at scientific conferences. And why don't you get shootouts at scientific conferences, at least yet? Because scientific conferences, in the ideal, they have a methodology for resolving disputes that is objective and rational. And I mean, I remember once uh, going to visit a friend of mine. I thought we were meeting at 7 o'clock, and I'm waiting on a street corner. It was cold. It's Canada. It's winter. And he eventually came to pick me up, and I was mad at him. Right? Because I was like, yeah, I've been waiting for an hour. <laughs> Where were you? And he's like, no, 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 you said eight. I said, no, 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 I said seven. And he said, look, I wrote it down. Meet Steph. Eight o'clock, right? And, and then, okay, is that perfect? No, but I think it was real. I think it was real. And so, okay, I had to let go of my being upset because I had simply made a mistake, right? I'd said eight and I was there at seven. So that's an objective way of resolving the dispute is that he'd written it down and I accepted what he'd written. So when you have an objective methodology for resolving disputes, you don't go to violence. You don't go to violence. So why do people hit children? Because what the parents want the children to do can't be explained rationally, can't be put forward rationally. They can't appeal to the child's reason. And I had Dr. Alison Gopnik, who wrote The Philosophical Baby, she was on my show, talking about you can start to morally reason with children at about 15 or 16 months of age. 
children can start to detect statistical probabilities at about 13 months of age. Babies are unbelievable when it comes to philosophy and understanding things. And we just think of them, these cute lumps of goo, you know, big eyes and drool and stuff. No, no, no. Their brains are like intergalactic when it comes to their potential. And so if, like I always had this as a rule for myself, if I can't explain something rationally to my daughter, I will not expect her to do it. I, I need to, like, it's on me. I have to figure out a rational way to, to get my daughter to do something if I wanted to do it. And if I can't come up with a, ra- I mean, but if you have, if you feel that the child must do something and you can't find a way to explain it or you've never developed that skill or that way of interacting with your child, then the next step is, is violence. The next step is, I mean, the government can't explain what the hell it wants to do with your money. That makes any sense, which is why they have to take it from you by force. The anti-rationality is the statue. The violence is just a shadow cast by the statue. So if, and this is why philosophy, it's why philosophical parenting, peaceful parenting, kind of one and the same thing. If you get people to have rational thoughts, then they will not feel drawn to violence because they can simply explain themselves. I mean, in a study that was done, the one I mentioned earlier, where they were trying to study yelling, but they ended up studying spanking by accident. Literally, the mom was saying, this will teach you not to hit and hitting her child. And it's like, okay, is hitting bad? Is hitting good? Is hitting okay if you're big enough? And, you know, if this guy grows up to hit women, we'll know exactly why. Why would this guy grow up? Why would this little boy grow up to hit women? Because he'd been hit by his mom, you know, 10 times a week for 15 years or 10 years or whatever, right? And of course, if spanking worked, then, you know, 40% of teens wouldn't still need to be spanked because it should have worked by then, right? It should have worked by then. So if you can teach people to have simple, clear, cogent, and it's not, it's not genius. It's not genius at all. It's not like I'm not asking people to master differential equations or, you know, Fermat's last theorem in order to be parents because then that would just be a rarefied high IQ occupation. It's the simplest thing in the world. It's the simplest thing in the world to just have a couple of simple principles. It's really, it's so easy. It's so sensible. It's so, ugh, it's not complicated. Like, you know, the Ptolemaic system, right? They, they used to think that there was perfect circles, right? Everything was a perfect circle because that was God's ideal shape. And then the retrograde motion of Mars, you know, where you zoom around quicker in the sun and Mars looks like it's going backwards. That's really that insanely complicated to figure out where Mars was. You need like pages and pages and pages of equations just to figure out where Mars was until... Boom, put the sun at the center of the solar system, and now you know where Mars is because you know now that you've got Mercury, you've got, you got uh, Venus, you've got Earth, you've got Mars, and you know where the position is. You need like two equations to figure out where Mars is. So once you have the right perspective on the universe, it's really, really, really simple to get things done. And so I didn't have to sit there and say, I, uh, I hit my child so that the child won't hit. And then you come up with all these weird justifications like that's somehow okay. You're not a complete flaming hypocrite. You're not an abuser. You're not a mean guy. You're not doing evil to a helpless and dependent child that you brought into this world to love. It's like, no. I. And then, of course, your child won't hit other children because that's just not the language. Like, my daughter's not going to hit another child. That would be like her breaking into fluent Japanese when she's never heard Japanese. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. She's, she's confident, she's, she's funny, she's very social, she's a great leader, she's, you know, I mean, I've mean, got shows with her, she's witty, she's engaging. Well, because I've always reasoned with her and I've never intimidated her and, and never frightened her. I mean, why would you want to bring a helpless, dependent, wonderful being into this life to bully and 
finger wag and, and frightened and like it's terrible. It's a terrible idea. So if we can get people to think clearly and simply, simply, it's so much easier. Oh, and the non-aggression principle. Let's not have any Ptolemaic exceptions to the non-aggression principle. If you wouldn't do it to an adult, you should never do it to a child. If you wouldn't, uh, oh, but you see, they are, but kids, they, you know, their brains are immature. It's like, okay, so their brains are deficient relative to an adult. So what? You know, when you and I get old, our brains will be deficient relative to now. Does that mean if I forget my keys, my daughter can beat me up? Of course not. <laughs> I mean, if somebody's got a deficient mental state, we should show them more kindness, not hit them. I mean, come on. I mean, so if you just have simple, clear ethics that are universal, it's very easy. It's, I mean, I'll just give you a tiny practical example, right? So my daughter, wonderful, wonderful girl, she experimented with lying. She experimented with not keeping her word. Perfectly sensible. You did it as a kid. I did it as a kid. Everybody does it as a kid, right? You try sneaking candy. You try taking quarters from your mom's purse back in the day. It's just natural, right? You're exploring different kinds of behavior. Very easy conversation. Very easy. I said, okay, so, so we can... We can break break our word now, right? Because that's the rule, right? We don't have to keep our word. That's and she's like, oh no no, I don't, <laughs> I don't want that. And it's like, okay, well wait. So you broke your word. So that means I can break my word. Like, is it good or bad to break your word? If it's good to break your word, or if it's okay to break your word, then I'll take that rule, and I'll make promises, and I won't keep them, right? And if it's bad to break your word, in other words, if you want me to keep my word, then you should keep your word, right? I mean, that's fair, right? I mean, shouldn't be one-sided or the other, right? This is a universal principle. And literally, five-minute conversation. And we moved on. I kept my word. She kept her word. And again, you know, it's little exceptions here and there. You can't keep it or whatever. But it's really, it's not that complicated. It's not complicated at all. And it's so much easier. It's so much more enjoyable. So people, you know, when you see people using violence, it's because they can't express irrational perspective they can't express a rational thought they have a desperate need and like if you imagine that you're you're gagged and and blindfolded and you're in desperate need of water you're just going to stumble around and you're just going to grab water because you're dying of thirst and because you're gagged you're bound you can't speak you can't you're just going to grab it right you're just going to and if you have to elbow people aside to get it whereas if you can speak and reason you can say to someone hey man can you get me some water i'm really thirsty and i'll pay you later or whatever right and so Violence is the result of the failure to communicate, and the failure to communicate is the result of the failure to think or the fact that thinking has beaten, been beaten out of you. So um, more philosophy, more reason, more evidence uh, will result in the compassionate and kind treatment of children and will create a world that is such a paradise. It looks like we will in that world. I doubt I'll live to see it. I'll probably get somewhere there. But in that world, you know, we'll look back at this world like you and I look back at the king's got shit all over him scenes from like the Middle Ages, like the Monty Python movie scenes where you just look back and you say, oh my God, you married a woman who'd never brushed her teeth? I mean, you bathed once a year, you animals. <laughs> What's the matter with you? We'll look back at, you know, when they used to, like we look at the Aztecs or the Mayans, I, can't remember, I think it's Aztecs. They had a god that, that survived on the tears of children and they would physically torture children to please their god. And we look back and then we say, oh my God, that was barbaric. And we'll look back in the future at this society where we stuff kids in these terrible, terrible government incarceration tombs of the brain called schools. 
and we drug them if they're not having a great time in these communist indoctrination centers, and we dump them in daycare, and we use them as economic collateral to buy votes and sell off their futures to banksters from China so that they end up as virtual economic slaves by the time they pop out into adulthood. And then we nag and blame them for not having incentives and motivation. And we will look back at that and we will say, my God, what barbaric, barbaric times we live in. It is unbelievably barbaric. Like we look at slaves, we look at slaves getting hobbled and slaves getting their backs broken on a wheel as punishment for running away. And we look at that and we say, my God, how, how could people live like that? How could there be these moral standards in the world? We're living that right now. And the greatest victimized class, I called it childism, right? Oh, everyone's sexism, racism, homophobia, Islamophobia. No, no, no. Childism. Prejudice against children. Lack of recognition that children are the first and greatest members of society to be respected and protected. We don't, we don't solve childism. Nothing else is going to mean anything. And we will be dangerous and angry children with very powerful weapons. And that does not bode too well. I know that was your last question, so I may find it profitable to end there. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I just really have to pee. So that's why I was. <laughs> off, but, <laughs> Wait, you, um, you see that? Was it that movie with um, a Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? You ever see that movie? Oh, you're too young. Yeah. Anyway, it's an old Steve Martin movie. I know you got to pee. And Steve Martin is playing a guy who's mentally challenged to drive a woman away so that they can rob her. And uh, Michael, he says to to Michael Caine, uh, "I need to pee." And Michael Caine, they're sitting at a dinner table, and Michael Caine says, "Go ahead." And he's like. So if you made that face uh, over the course, I, I would know. All right. So, yeah, that's that's fine. If you're done with me, that's no problem. Um, Stefan, where can people find you? So uh, I am looking in your conscience like Voldemort. So I am uh, freedomain.com. You can find me there if you'd like to check out my uh, free novel, freedomain.com forward slash almost. Uh, if you want to browse the podcasts, you can get there from Freedomain. But you can also go to fdrpodcast.com. The whole search feature, you can look at the videos. You can sort and organize by categories. And uh, it's like close to 5,000 shows. So you're not going to run out of me anytime soon. All right. Well, Stefan, you've made a good case for um, peaceful parenting. So. I hope people check you out. I'll put all your links in the description. And uh, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invitation.